I have, um, I have an idea this morning that I'd like to share with you. And that is, wouldn't it be great if we had a really good answer to the question, where is God? Right, I mean, if you think about the countless opportunities that people have to ask that question because of the circumstances maybe that they're experiencing, you have to imagine when a community is rocked by some incident or a family, um, their life is interrupted by some devastating news or an individual has something unexpected happen. The question, where is God, uh, often, often comes up. I think there is I think there is a really good answer to that question. And I think that you and I we play a part in answering that question. The Bible teaches us that God is living in the community of his church by his spirit. That is that where you have people who are filled with God's Spirit, gathered together, there's a very remarkable and particular way in which God lives and expresses himself through that community. So that the church has the potential of being able to show a world where God is. All along in our study of this ancient letter that we call 1 Corinthians, we've been looking at the very careful way that Paul is trying to help a church understand how it has, in some ways, lost itself. And today, Paul expands on analogies that he's using to describe the church and here he talks about the church as a temple. Um, when you and I hear something like a temple, we probably think about a building, a religious building. And for Paul, that certainly would have been top of mind. Uh, Paul grew up in an environment where going to temple was encouraged. It was a meaningful religious expression for people like Paul. Uh, but now at this point in Paul's life, when he talks about the temple, he has an entirely different idea of what the temple is. Uh, far different from the temple he had known growing up. Paul describes the people of God as the temple of God. And so Paul has a great concern, again, expressed throughout this letter for the welfare, the well-being of this thing that is the temple of God. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, 
Paul here is going to begin talking about uh, the foundation upon which the work of God is built. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I want to read verses 10 and 11 uh, to get us started. This is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Paul says, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. And another builds on it. Remember, we're talking about an analogy of a building. Paul, in the previous verse, describes the church as a building that God is building. So now here he talks about how he is, as a skilled master builder, he has laid a foundation and another builds on it. But then he begins a warning and says, but each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Verse 10 there, Paul says that what he is and what he is doing is according to God's grace. Paul's also... Uh, he's always careful to remember from where he comes and the reason for why he is where he is, that it's always attributed to the grace of God. Right? He says, according to God's grace, I have laid a foundation. Now, if you don't know what grace is, grace is or could be simply thought of as a gift. Um, a gift that is freely given to us by God. And Paul experienced this gift of grace in a personal way and also in a vocational way. In a personal way, Paul experienced God's grace in that he had been living his life with certain ambitions that were actually exactly the opposite <laughs> of what God had for him. He was a persecutor of the church, the very thing that now he is trying to build up. He was its greatest opponent. He wanted to destroy this thing called the church. Um, but God intercepted his life, revealed himself to Paul in a very dynamic way and turned Paul's life into a completely opposite direction from where it had been going, and Paul refers to this experience as a gift, right? The, the gift of the grace of God. Some of you have experienced this very same gift in your own life. The gift of how your life was running in a direction until God intercepted it and revealed himself to you and set you on another path. This gift was not just a personal thing for Paul, but it also became the entirety of his life, right? And so when you think about what Paul now did with his life in response to the gift that he had been given, Paul reflects on what he's doing, where God is bringing him, how God is using him to spend his life, like we talked about last week. Um, Paul was uniquely called to proclaim the good news in areas of the world that had not yet heard it. Um, it was a, I'm sure, a very exciting thing for somebody to do, but also a very dangerous thing. In fact, 
when you read the stories of Paul's life, you'll find that many, many times he found himself in extremely dangerous situations because he was going into the world of the unknown. I mean, we kind of take for granted whatever level of um, experience or exposure we've had to things like God and Jesus, the Bible and whatnot. But for Paul, he was going into areas that really had no idea at all what the gospel was. And God was using him to break up the ground there for the very first time, to plant these little fledgling churches. That is to find as people were listening to and embracing the message that he brought and were responding by turning their lives toward Jesus, uh, creating these little congregations of churches. Um, Paul was being used in this very special way. And this, again, he describes it as a gift. And so now he, he wants to bring the church at Corinth back to the beginning, right? He talks about how what he did when he came to town is he laid a foundation. That is what Paul established from day one that thing would serve as the basis for what would come after, right? Paul says, I laid a foundation and now others come and build on that foundation, but let each person be careful how they build. Why? Because whenever the building is being done, the foundation has to be taken into consideration. I mean, think about it. What is so important about a foundation? We know that a foundation gives structure, right? And it gives stability to the building that's going to be placed on top of it. You have a building without a foundation. It's kind of like if you had a tree without roots that went into the ground. A foundation gives structure and stability. A foundation determines the, the scope and the limits of a building, right? You don't, you don't build a foundation like this, that one. Nice looking foundation, is it not? I mean, I don't know that much about it, but looks good. Yeah, certainly not a walkout basement, but a foundation nonetheless. But you don't, you don't build a foundation like this in order to erect a structure like this. That's a picture of a house of somebody that goes to church here that isn't currently tithing. And so Paul talks about this foundation. What we need to look at is, well, what is, what was for Paul, what is the church's foundation? The foundation was not a very elaborate and perfect set of doctrinal statements and church practices, right? Which is a good thing because then you and I would be wrestling with, well, you know, which church? I mean, there's lots of churches. How do I know if I'm in the right one? <laughs> right? 
Like which church has the right set of doctrinal statements and church practices? Is this it or did I miss it? So that's not what the foundation was. The foundation was, though, a simple message. It was a simple message that people were asked to believe. And it was a simple message that confronted people's own personal beliefs. The fact that Paul had to go into a place like Corinth and proclaim something illustrates the fact that to that point, people had not embraced that very message. And so this simple message that Paul proclaimed that, like I said, did a couple of things. One, it provoked a person to choose whether or not to believe it. And for essentially everybody, it confronted their own personal beliefs. In other words, that the content of this simple message was the very opposite of what everyone knew to be true. For instance, the simple message was that God has come into our world. You read the story of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, you find that as soon as he has encountered Jesus Christ and has turned his life around, it says he immediately began proclaiming Jesus. He is the son of God. This for Paul was a 180 degree turn from where he had, going, had been going, right? For as far as Paul was concerned, Jesus was not the son of God. He was quite the opposite. He was the enemy of all that is God. He was a, an imposter. He was a fake, a fraud. He was dangerous in that he initiated this movement that had the potential of upsetting who God really was and what God really was doing. But then, but then Paul, he had his personal beliefs confronted and there made the decision to embrace what was now being revealed to him. And he then begins to go and proclaim the same Jesus that he is in fact God. Again, now a message that for those that were listening, would have been the opposite of what they believed to be true. And so this simple message was God has come into our world. Think about some of the personal beliefs this must have contradicted. Uh, for instance, the Jews, um, Paul's own people, the Jews would have had to, nothing but disbelief and disgust at the idea of something like God coming into the world, right? As far as the Jewish mind was concerned, God would never do something like that. He couldn't possibly do something like that. The idea that God has come into the world might confront some of our personal beliefs. The atheist who has a belief that there is no such thing as God, 
is confronted by such a statement as God has come into the world. Jesus is the son of God, right? The atheist who believes there is no such thing as God. Obviously, there's a confrontation here. Well, is there a God or is there not a God? And so the atheist has to decide when confronted with this truth, which Jesus, that God has come into the world, it's like, okay, well, what do I do with that? Right? If I don't believe that there is a God, now somebody is telling me that God has come into the world. Well, that necessarily means that God must exist. So, you know, what do I do with that? Right? Some people will reject the idea that God has come into the world uh, because they have not surrendered this disbelief in God. Not only does the atheist have their beliefs confronted, but um, what I like to refer to as the practical atheist. Uh, you might be here this morning, and you're not a person that would say there is no such thing as God, but I wonder if there's any of us here this morning are, that are living our lives in such a way that it would seem as if we didn't believe <laughs> there's any such thing as a God, right? The practical atheist believes but there's no such thing as a God that I have to worry about ultimately being accountable to. So I'm just going to kind of live my life my own way, right? The idea, the truth that Jesus, the Son of God, has come into this world, it confronts such a belief as that. Um, it confronts the pantheist's belief that everything is God, right? Everything. All is God. Well, if all is God, then that can't be true at the same time that God as some other being that's distinct and different from the rest of the universe, that he has actually come into the world. Um, this confronts the spiritualist's belief that God can be reduced to something impersonal, more like a life force than a personal being who has a mind and a will, right? So again, the foundation that Paul laid is Jesus is the son of God. That is, God has come into our world. The simple message also indicated that Jesus is the crucified king who saves and redeems the world. A few verses later in that same chapter, Acts chapter 9, says Paul kept confounding the Jews by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, get the picture, right? Paul goes into the synagogue, which was like their church, or he goes into the temple. Right? He goes into this place of worship where religious people who have very particular religious beliefs have gathered together, and he begins telling them something that is the opposite of what they believe. He's contradicting their beliefs, right? These who have are currently in the state of having rejected the idea that Jesus is any king, certainly no savior of the world, Paul is now confronting that by establishing the foundation that Jesus is, in fact, the crucified king who saves and redeems the world. When Paul brings that message into the various places that God was bringing him, you think about uh, the cosmopolitans of the day, right, who were seeking after wisdom. To hear a message like this, that, that someone was crucified, and through that now redeems and saves the world would have been an utterly foreign idea. 
They would have rejected it. They, they would have thought that for a God to do such a thing would have shown weakness, not strength and wisdom. This is not the kind of God who deserves to be worshipped. There was this idea in, in, the, in the mind of the Jews and the non-Jews alike that when you thought about God, God was this being who was only concerned about your particular tribe and not everybody else's. As far as the Jews were concerned, God was utterly concerned with the welfare and well-being of the nation of Israel. And that's it, right? There was a kind of supremacy that they felt regarding their own, um, their own kind. Uh, and, and, and so it went with, you know, so many other tribes, right? You had these tribes that were faithful to their particular God with the idea that, um, you know, that their God was for them and against everyone else. But this message that Jesus is the crucified king who saves and redeems the world, right? It's the whole world. Right, that there is this fulfillment of what God was ultimately planning for all of humankind, and that is the redemption of every single person, not just the select chosen few among one ethnic tribe. The foundation that Jesus is this crucified king who saves and redeems the world can confront a belief that you or I might have today I think a lot of people wrestle with this personal belief that, that there's nothing from which I really need to be saved and redeemed. That is that I am basically good, and that's good enough. How many live their lives with the kind of belief system that's orchestrated around the idea that what exactly do I need to be saved from? I mean, look at me. I'm basically good. That's good enough. To introduce an idea or to lay a foundation that Jesus is the Messiah who saves and redeems the world, what it suggests to every single one of us in this room, no matter how good or bad any of us might think about ourselves, is we all need saving. Every one of us. Every one of us is like one stuck, and the Bible uses the language of one stuck in a pit of clay, right? Fallen into this hole, and there's, there's no way that we can escape from the clutches of that pit. We are doomed to die without something or someone from the outside reaching in and pulling us out to safety. That's you and me. That's our lives. Up until the point where we put our faith in Jesus as our Savior, we're lost and in need of salvation. Then, of course, there is, and this is, I think, a very popular personal belief that many hold, that you and I may, at varying degrees, hold even for ourselves, that, well, I am my own king I am my own master. And so I don't owe my allegiance. And by allegiance, I mean things like my loyalty, 
my affection, my obedience. I don't, I don't owe my allegiance to any other king. Right? If I am holding this personal belief, that stands in contrast to the one that says, Jesus is the crucified king who saves and redeems the world. And so this is the foundation that Paul has laid, right? This foundation, which is Jesus Christ and the implications of who and what Jesus is. And so according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. And then he says, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. Right, so another builds on it. This foundation is laid, it's set. And now there is building that is going on. And this gives us kind of the idea, the picture, that there is an ongoing work. There is a process of what that building is becoming, right? That the church, as it were, right, the people of God, established on a foundation, are what we might describe as a work in progress. That we can look at what we are, and see that we are something that is still under construction. In fact, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea for us to put construction signs all over this place to remind us, to key us in on, this is not a finished work. But this is very, very important. What it is that we are becoming is not to be determined or indefinite. And why is that? Well, because there's a foundation. Remember what we said at the beginning, the foundation provides the scope and the limits of what will be built on it. A builder cannot both embrace the foundation of a building and also reject it at the same time, right? This is a bad builder who has a disregard for the foundation when taking into consideration how that person is going to now build on it. We've seen in many different ways, many different expressions, um, all through the church's past, and even contemporaneous with us today, we have seen poor expressions of the building God has had in mind for what his church is called to be. There are places, in other words, there are those, those things that call themselves churches, but like the bones really aren't very good because, because that thing was being built into something else that the foundation cannot support. Um, let me just give you a few 
kind of examples or expressions that might illustrate this point. Um, there are churches that have become identified by a priority given to their nationalistic ideas. Right? That is, I mean, there are some churches that you can find that treat something like, um, for our context, something like American patriotism as being the same thing as good Christianity. Um, and that in, in all these expressions of churches, there is something, there's something good there, but there's also something kind of wrong there uh, because they've built outside the scope of the foundation. Um, that is, you know, it's perfectly appropriate for you and me to love and appreciate and serve the nation that we belong to. It's okay for me to have a deep affection for the country, the homeland in which I was born. In fact, we could go so far as to say I have a responsibility toward the land in which God has put me. However, when this ends up radicalizing to a point where a person is treating their political identity as if it's the same thing as their Christian identity, now we have a problem. Now we have something that has moved off the foundation. What foundation? The foundation that Jesus is the Son of God, the crucified King who's come to save and redeem the world. The moment that I start thinking, like truly thinking and having this idea that, um, that I am, because of my heritage, something better than what someone else is because of their heritage, I've gone wrong. There's the manipulative and controlling church. Some of you may have experienced at some point in your religious life, um, the kind of religious institution that was very manipulative and controlling. What's good about, um, or yeah, I suppose what, the, the good that we might draw from that kind of community is a high degree of feeling like we are accountable to one another. Right? Like you're going to find people um, feeling like that to be a church to, means that we are accountable to one another. We can hold each other accountable. However, what ends up happening is the building starts veering off the foundation. Now all of a sudden you have um, people ruling behavior as a means of controlling people. There's the grace-abusing church, right? The church that kind of holds the idea uh, that because God's gifts are freely given, well, hey, we can just do whatever we want, right? Like, they properly hold the idea that as a Christian, I am free from the law, and praise God for that. But then they go on beyond that to teach that that freedom excuses any obligation to obey the law or to restrain sin, right? That it doesn't matter what you do because God's grace will cover it all. There's the activist church, right? The church that is, again, moved off the foundation that is Christ and has concentrated and focused itself on something other than that. And what's wonderful about such a community is that uh, these are people who are committed to instigating Necessary change, right? They're looking to help right the wrongs that they witness in society. But what ends up going wrong is that they live with this prevailing notion that 
that they're people who don't need any saving and that they themselves will become the saviors of all. There's the gimmicky church, right? The church that has leveraged any number of strategies or incorporated any number of um, means and ways to get people to come to the church, right? Just there, there's, there's some gimmick that's bringing in the people. And what's great about it is, you know, there's clearly a desire to attract people to consider the claims of Jesus. Uh, such a church is often very well managed. Everything is usually pretty polished and well-produced. But the problem is, is that um, the necessary entertainment and the other feel-good vibes that they use to attract people end up replacing the call that every one of us has to repentance and to heart transformation. And then finally, and this isn't, you know, all the ways that I think the churches go wrong. This is really just a few, but there's there's also the prosperity and wellness church, right? Which again, properly teaches things like God is good and God is the giver of everything that is good, but goes wrong in that it becomes more concerned trying to convince people that God is far more interested in their happiness than in their becoming holy. So these are ways in which the church kind of like gets off the foundation and begins building in other directions and ends up with a structure other than what the church was designed and intended to become. And so the question is, well, how does this happen? How does the church lose its way? I think it's pretty clear that the church loses its way because of our pride. It's because we, as the builders, start thinking that we're smarter than the architect. You know, imagine the builder who, like, looks at the plans, just like, ah, <laughs> never mind those. You know how long I've been doing this? And then just starts throwing pieces of wood together. We don't know better than the architect. And so Paul, got, Paul goes on, verse 12, he says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The work that is happening all over the world, including like the work that is being done in this modest little thing we call a church, the, what's actually taking place might escape the scrutiny of human observers, right? I mean, we can't, after all, we can't read the hearts and the minds and the motives of other people. And oftentimes our knowledge is incomplete. But what Paul here says is that the work, that is what has been built, what we are building, will be revealed for what it actually is. 
Paul now, he is concerned with each individual and how and what they are building. And he sort of brings us, fast forwards us to the day where in the end, our work will be revealed for what it actually is. That day of judgment will reveal the quality of each work. In the case of like the church as kind of this corporate entity, this this gathering of people, did this church build on the foundation of the gospel or did it move beyond that, seeking worldly wisdom? Our work will be revealed. My work will be revealed for what it is. Your work will be revealed for what it is. And so I think it's important for us to just consider what is the work that I'm contributing to? What is the work that you are contributing to? Listen, don't don't be content with just not being bad. How many of you are trying really hard not to be bad? Really? All right. So the rest of you are trying, not trying, really hard not to be bad. Okay. Fair enough. Hey, it's a place of honesty here. Right? I'll, I'll, bet, I'll bet most of us are, are trying, we're trying not to be bad. Like that's, that's not, it's not in our heart to be bad, to do bad, whatever. Don't be content. Don't, don't think that, that religion or, um, uh, yeah, religious devotion or, or piety boils down to just simply trying not to be bad. But rather, think of it more like, what is the good that I am doing with what God has given me? Right, the work, there, there, the work is going to be revealed for what it is. My life is going to be brought before God and it's going to be evaluated for what it really is. Not what everybody else thinks about it. I mean, you might be out there, you might think that the work, you know, that I'm doing or the person sitting next to you is great. Right? What good did I do with what God has given me? As a church, we have to think about the same thing. Like, you know, will the work of our church be something that when presented to God, God, look at, look, look at what we have worked toward. Is it just going to amount to, you know, something like a bunch of people kind of went through the motions for years and years and years? What good, that's what we're going to be asked. What good did you do with what I gave to you? Paul says that, and this is, uh, I mean, this, this should I, I provoke us a little bit, but Paul said that reward and loss are certain. <laughs> we're not told exactly what that means. I, we don't know exactly what that looks like. But there is, in the evaluation of things, when our work is revealed, there will be instances of reward. 
and there will be instances of law. He describes one as coming and being saved as through fire. Um, this might look something like, you know, the difference between, uh, let's say you have these two artists, right? And one has a studio full of masterpieces that they have put together over the course of their entire lives. And they're given a warning that destruction is coming, a fire is coming. And so they, 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 they work to rescue all of those things out so that when the fire comes, the works remain. And then you have this other who, again, also has a studio full of all the works that they have produced over an entire lifetime. But they don't heed the warning of the destruction that's coming. And so when the fire comes, it burns and everything is destroyed. That person themselves is snatched out like in the nick of time. That's sort of what Paul is suggesting. And so Paul says in verses 16 and 17, don't you yourselves know that you, and I put in brackets here the word all because this word you is not you as in you singular, it's you as in you all. Um, probably a Southern Bible would help. Y'all, right? Don't you yourselves know that you all are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you all, right? What did I say at the beginning? I suggested the idea that the answer to this question, where is God, is God is in a very particular and special way. God is in and among his people. You are, you all are God's temple and the spirit of God lives in you all. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and that is what you all are. This community, this community is sacred. Right? This community is what Paul would describe as the temple of God, and the Holy Spirit is present in a special way. Paul knew that when, when people went to temple, um, if, they, like if, they, if they went with the right kind of attitude and posture, they went to the temple carefully. <laughs> right? That there, there was there was a there was a particular posture that they had with the idea of going into God's temple where God's presence was. And I think Paul would have us approach what is God's temple with the same level of sacredness. That is when we consider what we are, who we are. Are we careful about how we take into account God's people and how God's presence is here in a special way? If a church has lost its way, um, then what it needs to do is it needs to return to its foundational principles. All those different ways that I talked about how churches can kind of lose their way, like there's, we've we've probably dipped our toes into every single one of those things, right? We we've we've probably 
we've probably found ourselves, right, because, again, we are a work in progress. And, and, and we shouldn't be so proud and arrogant to think that, well, I mean, I know other places have lost their way, but that would never happen to us. So if a church has lost its way, it needs to return to its foundational principles. It needs to return back to that foundation, that simple message. It can't, it can't keep moving in the direction that it's going, right? Because it's going to ultimately build something that will not last and will be destroyed. Nor can it just simply adapt to kind of the next idea of what a remodel might look like, but that also goes outside the scope of what the foundation has defined. Nor does it need to be scrapped. I, my heart grieves over the many, many people that have just scrapped the idea. Right? We live in a day today where um, more and more people are considering themselves religiously unaffi- um, unaffiliated, right? Uh, they're called like the group of the nuns. You heard of that? Not N-U-N-S. Not, not like women wearing habits, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. What religion do you belong to? None. My heart grieves over the reality that so many people have failed to see the Spirit of God living in a dynamic way among God's people. The church has so many times, unfortunately, become quite arguably a place where God's presence is considered to dwell. But I want to say this morning, the church doesn't need to be scrapped. Like Jesus didn't, he wasn't wrong with his idea of what he wanted for his church to be. The Bible isn't wrong about what the church ultimately is intended to be as the bride of Christ, as the temple of God, as the family of God, as a field that God is tending to, right? And all these other analogies that is used to describe God's church. And so, if I could, let's us be careful how we build. Let's be careful how we are tending to the work that God has assigned to each of us. Let's be careful not to desecrate the temple of God. You know, some people think of desecrating the temple of God as something like, you know, somebody driving by and breaking the windows of the church building or spray painting a wall or in some other way defacing a structure. But the temple of God is not a structure. It's not a building. This thing could burn down to the ground and the church would still be the church because the church is us. And so let's not desecrate God's temple by failing to recognize it for what it is. The people, to think about the honor that each of us deserves among one another. Like you deserve my honor as a brother or a sister in Christ. I am obliged to honor you. We are obliged to honor one another. Let's not desecrate God's temple by failing to give ourselves to one another. Let's not desecrate God's temple 
by failing to pray for one another, to share one another's burdens, or by creating strife and division, or by being ungracious and unforgiving. Paul says the person who knowingly works to destroy the temple of God's people is working toward their own destruction. I don't know about you, but my hope, my prayer is that this thing that is God's temple, built, being built properly on the foundation that is laid, where Christ is, like we sang this morning, exalted given first place, given prominence, given preeminence, put at the very, very top, made the center of each of our lives, made the centerpiece of everything that we are about and everything that we are doing. That is, in fact, the temple of God, where God's spirit dwells.